Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Controversial subjects with the facts can be tense, but we are a sub-science here to make things make sense. Welcome back to Side Note Podcast. Today, we're talking about what it might be like to live on Mars and what that can teach us about sustainable living, sustainable eating right here on Earth with our amazing guest, Dr. Proctor, who's going to walk us through some really cool science. I'm very excited about our little interview today. How about you, Greg? Yeah, <laughs> me too. Dr. Proctor. Whoop, whoop. Best know, name ever. Epic name. Um, <laughs> how's it going, Greg? I'm good. How are you? It's Friday, so there's always a little pep in the step. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what is new. <laughs> I feel oh, like I, every week we just have to talk about like updates on quarantine. Yeah, which What's for me latest? is nothing. Oh, ordering in food sometimes, cooking for <laughs> myself, looking at gray walls. Staring. Actually, that'll be really relevant. I feel like uh, our relationship to food has changed a lot over quarantine, which we can talk about today. Oh my like, gosh, yeah. Food. I feel like more and more i've always been an introvert but i feel like i'm becoming more introverted i don't know why i feel like i'm kind of like oh i'm so glad it's the weekend because i actually just want to stay inside and do nothing oh my gosh i think i know why it's because we're in a global (laughs) pandemic and we all like even as someone who identifies as extrovert with a bit of introvert i'm i am an introvert too i'm like I don't even think about Friday nights as like a time to hang out with anyone other than myself. I guess that's true. But even, uh, yeah, no, I just am like before, maybe because it was summer and now it's transitioning to winter. Now I'm like yeah. fully ready to hibernate and true. be like, I don't need to see anyone until next March for whenever, my birthday. <laughs> whenever I go outside and see people doing things, I'm like, oh, wait, people are still doing that? Like, I feel like we've really leaned into this whole yeah, uh, it's pandemic actually life. shocking. Um, but yeah, has, it, has anything else? Been no, honestly, you? like this, this part of the podcast is just always a little bit. Because <laughs> there's nothing ever <laughs> there's really like, I'm sorry, people. I well, honestly think we should get into it. Yeah, today. Okay, let's just jump into and bring our guest on. I'm going to play our little jingle and then we'll get into it. Study time. Study time. Study time. All right, so today we have Dr. Cyan Proctor, who is a geoscientist, a science communicator, and an analog astronaut who completed a four-month Mars mission at the high seas uh, facilities, which I have been obsessed with and always like dreamed of doing myself. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Yeah, we're so excited. Like, after even reading your bio more, I was just like, everything you know about are things that I have so many questions about, which we're going to go through today. Um, But before we start, how is your quarantine? You know, it's been about transitions and creativity. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, I probably a bunch of people out there. I'm going through a divorce, so I moved out of my house and I'm living in my brother's house now. And so it's been an interesting transition there, but, but good also. And uh, and then creativity, trying to be creative in a time of COVID so that I don't get, you know, go crazy. Uh, And (laughs) that has been a a fun, interesting challenge. Yeah, I totally I think that creativity and creating things is the only way I'm coping as well. I think that's a really good thing to just even mention off the top, just being like, that's it's okay if that's your coping mechanism, because it is for us and it is for you and it is a good one. It is interesting how creativity will emerge during times of stress that we didn't even realize um, and, and it as a coping mechanism. And so I, a lot of times I tell my students and encourage them that even if you don't think you, of yourself as being creative, the, try something, something you've always wanted to do during this time and explore because it will help just kind of calm you down and take away some of that stress. 
That's so true. That's such good advice. Like, I feel like I sometimes feel like I should do that and then I neglect it, but I need to find a good system to actually get into that sort of creativity. Um, okay. I want to first talk about a little bit more about who you are, what you do. Let, what does it mean to be a geoscientist, first of all? Oh, being a geoscientist is the best thing in the world because it's all about, well, our, our world. I study the Earth and all of its processes. So I my degree is in geology, so I have a I look at earth processes whether that's interior or on the surface, but I also do weather and atmosphere and I do ocean science and I even do some planetary and sustainability. And so it's 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 for somebody who just loves everything about science and the earth. Oh my gosh. So all of those things fall under it. So, but, so when you become a geoscientist, you don't have to specialize in some way, or is there a specific reason why you seem to study so many different things? Well, that's a good point. So yes, a lot of times you will specialize as a geoscientist in one particular area, but that geoscience is a broad subject. So you could have paleontology under there. You can have hydrogeology under there. You can have volcanology under there. And so all of these ways of specializing, but I'm a community college professor. So I teach non-science majors about science and the earth and why they should love it and so it's more it's kind of like what you the earth science you would have gotten in middle school or high school where you touched on a lot of different subjects over the year well that's what i do in my my classes as a community college professor I love that because I feel like even as people who went into science, I also, our, our degree was kind of broad enough, like we both took the same degree that we got to take a variety of different courses of different classes and just it, I, I, no shade to like going into something specific. Obviously we <laughs> need people that are specialized, but I was like for myself personally, I just loved learning broadly. And it's amazing that people who might not be in science who are in the arts can actually understand and be inspired by aspects of science without having to delve necessarily deep into a specific topic. Exactly. And that's one of the things because I love everything about the earth and the earth systems. And then also thinking about how those systems interact. It, it's the perfect area for me to be a geoscientist because one day I'm talking about ocean sciences and going on a drilling ship for two months. And then, you know, the next day I'm living in the high seas habitat on the big island of Hawaii at 8,000 feet pretending ah. to be on Mars. So <laughs> you just I don't need know. To ask yeah. about that. Like we absolutely go, need to talk go. about that. So I have been obsessed with like the high seas projects are there i feel like there's maybe a couple others around the world that are similar but how did for those who don't know maybe tell us a little bit about high seas and what it is about and then how you got involved in what that project was like so I'm an analog astronaut, and an analog astronaut is somebody who engages in human spaceflight training and research, but here on Earth. So I'm not associated with an agency like NASA or the Canadian Space Agency. And what that enables me to do as an analog astronaut is that there's all of these analogs around the world, and an analog is something that's similar to something else. So we're looking at places on Earth that are analogous to the moon or Mars. Um, and so because of the terrain or some aspect, it might be cold, isolated uh, types of environments. And so NASA has a couple of places that they consider analog sites like Antarctica or going to Iceland. Uh, it can be an analog to Mars. And in 2012, they came up with the high seas habitat, which sits on the big island of Hawaii at 8,000 feet on the slopes of Mauna Loa. And they put out a call. NASA specifically funded mission, the very first mission to investigate food strategies for long duration spaceflight. And my friends know I'm the type of person who will sign up for anything. <laughs> and so they literally, a friend of mine posted on Facebook, you like food and you like um, space. NASA's looking for people to live in a Mars simulation for four months. You should apply. And I was like, I do love food and space. <laughs> I'm going to apply. And that I got... So cool. <laughs> 
I got selected. And so I ended up being part of the very first crew to live in the high seas habitat. I've got a picture of it on the back of this. So I took this picture. Ooh, yeah, it looks it's a like night a geodesic dome. <laughs> right. Oh, it's yeah, only... it does look like it. <laughs> It's only 900 square feet, um, usable 900 square feet, roughly. So you can imagine six people living in this dome for four months, investigating food strategies for long-duration spaceflight. But I did that. So when you're, so you're, you're allowed to leave the dome, correct? You are allowed to go outside in a spacesuit because you're acting like you're living on Mars. You're in a Mars simulation. And so the things that come with that is you basically land and go into the habitat. And because we were the very first crew, we had to set it all up. Um, we had to figure out where things go, all the food, you know, who got what bedroom, how we were going to organize ourselves. And But we have a mission control because, but because Mars and Earth are are moving at different rates, you know, and, and location in the solar system, it's about a 20 minute delay each way. So you have a communications delay. So there's a lot of autonomy uh, in how you operate. And if we went outside, we had to, we had an airlock where we depressurized for, you know, five minutes. And then you go outside and you do your stuff in your spacesuit. And then you come back in <laughs> and you sit in your airlock and then you can enter back into the habitat. And that was wow. for four months. Oh that my gosh. Survivors is nothing. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like is, so are you completely disconnected otherwise from like your only source of communication is through the the project itself? You don't have like a phone or internet or do you have access right. to those kinds of things? You do have access to internet. And but again, it's that idea of trying to put in that communications delay, 20 minutes. Um, there were some exceptions. We had all of our phones were taken away from us. So there was no like chatting with your <laughs> friends and family or any of that stuff. But there was an emergency phone in case, and the commander had that, just in case something went wrong and, you know, you needed emergency help, they would be able to get into contact with you. And what's cool about that is that we were the very first crew to live in the high seas habitat, but they've had multiple crews since then. And NASA has actually supported up to a year long mission. And wow. there was an actual, I think it was called the Habitat podcast that was based okay, on that. I was just, I just occurred to me that I listened to that. I, have you listened to it yourself or were you like, I, oh, I've already been through that? The second one. I've already been through that, lived it, knows, I know what it's like. And what's funny is I just recently went back in at the beginning of January, right before COVID hit, I went back to the high seas habitat after seven years with the first ever all female crew. And we lived in there for two weeks. This time it was two weeks. Two weeks is easy. Anybody right. can do yeah, two weeks. At this point you're like, yeah, you can do two <laughs> It's a vacation weeks. in Hawaii. Because <laughs> I remember listening to the habitat and it's kind of interesting because it becomes sort of a interpersonal relationship not drama but there were like there were fights and stuff that they oh, would highlight yeah. and it was like because you're living with these people that you don't necessarily know that well before at all right or did you know the people at Spill all the tea dr <laughs> proctor how were the folks yeah did you know them who were they no we met so you can imagine they put this call out international and they had over 700 people apply and then they got down to the the, the highly qualified and interviewed us and then they got down to 11 Finalists. I think it was either 11 or 9, I can't remember. And then they brought us together in person at Cornell University for a cooking class and to weed out, like, who do they want? You know, like, well, let's put these people together. And right. then what they did for us, this was in 2012. And then just before going, but we're from all over. We had somebody from Canada, somebody from Belgium, somebody from, you know, a couple people from the United States. And so we all scattered again, and then they said, okay, we're gonna bring you back together to do a two-week trial at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. So they brought us together to live for two weeks together, and then again, we scattered, and then we came back together to do the high seas habitat. But now, most of the time, they don't even do the two-week um, time before they just bring you in and see how well you get along. Okay, <laughs> drama. There needs to be a reality TV <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, they should make it. I mean, that's what the habitat <laughs> kind of ended up being. It starts out as this Mars interesting thing, but eventually you're like, oh my gosh, I'm like getting on, I'm on people's sides. Like people start fighting and stuff. 
Well, you know, and that's the thing is the honeymoon phase. When does the honeymoon phase end? And we were lucky. We were the first crew. And what NASA has found by doing four-month, six-month, eight-month, and year-long missions is that the cracks in crew cohesion mm. start to uh, start to appear about six to eight months. So wow. we, we didn't have as huh. much drama there was some but we be, we started to see right. the cracks right That's and i was like oh if we had lasted a little longer we might it have had gone. a <laughs> yep <laughs> kick somebody out of the habitat right honestly it reminds <laughs> so i was like i was on the show big brother in canada it reminds me so much of that because i'm like i feel like the producers probably know the exact times and ways and places that people start to have those like that emotional emotional turmoil or those deep emotional connections and i'm sure they're studying that as actual researchers and scientists being like yeah how do people interact because that matters a lot if you're going to send someone to, to the moon or out into space for a year or something like that yeah absolutely right uh, crew cohesion and how you can get along is probably the biggest thing from a psychology psychological perspective wow. because if you interact with you know little ticks over time will start to get on your nerves when you can't escape whether it's the way somebody chews or the way that they walk or just even little mannerisms where you're like okay I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's so interesting because it's like exactly like if you're like if you're starting to try and colonize Mars, <laughs> it's like you need to be you are going to need to be completing tasks. You are going to need to problem solve. It's so funny because I didn't I never thought about that. I never thought about the interpersonal relationships as being an important part of studying this like Hawaii uh, the high seas, but then it's like, yeah, that could, it's like the psychology of our complex human condition could be the thing that ends up screwing everything. And I could just see NASA being like, oh, well, we didn't think that they had to get along. We just thought about like the, like the pipes and stuff. But isn't that just even now on Starship Earth, how we get along and, and our yeah. ability to communicate and work things out. And so looking at measures of resiliency and uh, ways in which you can, because people are going to fight. You, you know, you we grew up in families and stuff, and you, you, it's just it happens. Uh, and I mean, I, I I talked about living with my brother. Now I hadn't lived with him until I was sixteen. Yeah, I was sixteen <laughs> years old when the last time I lived with him. So it's like, ooh, how am I going to get on his nerves while I'm <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did they do? Did they do any? Oh, sorry. Did they do any? Um, like, was it part of the high seas to have actual like I don't know? Maybe it's conversations. Maybe it's ten minutes a day that everyone sort of hashes. Out, like were there anything that like nasa made you guys do in order to try and keep cohesion or were you just part of figuring that out we were part of figuring that out so then you know crews that came in after us um had certain types of things to mitigate against that because they knew they know conflict is going to happen so now it's all about how do you resolve that conflict in a healthy way and train hmm. people to be able to get over things and keep the the bigger mission at at bay because you you know, you go to Mars, you, there's no escape, you know, put on a, a, a spacesuit and go outside for a little while. It just, it's going to be, it's such a different um, environment that figuring out ways in which you can successfully get over the humps and hurdles that are going to happen is extremely important. Wow, I honestly feel like you probably are more well prepped for COVID than most people having been in a situation like that where you are sort of limited and you can't just willy nilly freely go do something and escape a certain situation if you if you don't aren't able to like, do you feel like you were <laughs> equipped for this? Absolutely. And that's what's interesting is that, you know, looking at these COVID and our quarantine as an analog for an analog astronaut is what we all just became. Hello. Um, we should all get like a little patch that says I survived. Um, but it's one of those things where we're learning to cope in this new kind of paradigm and wearing a mask how foreign is that to put a mask on that's like putting on a spacesuit every time you go outside and and the psychology that plays on that but also if you got to stay cooped up with friends family members or even if you're isolated alone because you can no longer have that social interaction that you are used to and that it, it's really impacting people and so i think that finding ways in which you can take this experience 
and um, really be retrospective or like think about what you're learning and how you're coping and, and then seek help for ways if you're not coping quite as well as you'd want. There's a lot of uh, uh, information out there. A lot of astronauts have spoken out about how to survive in this type of in time because mm -hmm. of what they learned from being on the International Space Station. That's fascinating because I was about to be like, yeah, like the high seat, like you are so equipped for this. It's like, like even the way you just said that was so confident, like that you can see the wisdom of those four months like coming through. Well, I got to tell you, here's a, fu a funny little fact. Um, so my evolution. So in 2009, I was a finalist for the astronaut program. So came down to the yes, no phone call. Right. And it was a no. And so I was like, uh, but then the year after that in 2010, people were like, what are you going to do? Well, I got offered to be on a discussion. Discovery Channel reality TV show called The Colony. And it was yeah. literally a post-apocalyptic build show where the premise was a virus that's wiped out most of the humanity. You're a survivor. Um, oh my God. What are you going to do? And they, you know, they put, and this was random strangers. They got brought a bunch of us together, put us in a 10 acre compound in Louisiana for two months and said, rebuild society and see how you get along. And, and so I did, <laughs> I You're did. You're so prepared. <laughs> <laughs> right. I did that before going to Mars. And in fact, when I interviewed to um, be in the high seas habitat, they want to know like, what have you done? Is there anything interesting? And I'm like, oh yeah, I lived in this, you know, apocalyptic world on the Discovery Channel two months. I got this. And the, the, the researchers were like, wait, what? <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about this crazy thing that you did. And, and, and now it's 10 years years later and here we are in this situation with a virus a global pandemic and having to think about coping mechanisms and all of those things so what were you what were some main sort of things that you took away or that you were studying while you were in the high seas like what were um maybe even you specifically or and, and i'm also curious what other people were doing as well while they were what do you do all day? <laughs> that, that's a that's a great question. And so again, you come in as a research subject, but you can also bring in your own research. And so this, the very first high seas mission was specifically funded by NASA to investigate food strategies for long duration space flight. And so what does that mean is if we're going to Mars, there's a couple of things that's interesting about that. One is that you're no longer in, you know, zero gravity or microgravity. You have gravity, even if it's one third Earth's gravity. And the second thing about that is then, can you, is there bang for your buck if you creatively cook? And so instead of doing prepackaged meals, and I know you guys got to do the Canadian Space Agency um, where you did the food test uh, with the different foods that they yeah, have. Yeah, it was impressive. Right. And so they have that system now where it's, it's freeze dried, pre prepared meals where you just add water and heat. And that's happening on the ISS. Well, what about taking all of those individual components and being able to creatively cook? So having a pantry of shelf-stable ingredients where you can go in and make a meal for your, you know, your fellow Martian astronauts. And so NASA was really interested in what does that do psychologically? And, and when we take our culture into space, what does that mean? And so I, I did my research in my area was all in being the communication person for the science happening in the habitat. But specifically, I ran a Meals for Mars cooking contest. And then I took all of these recipes and over the four months that people submitted, I, I cooked them with a different crew member and acted like I was, we had a cooking show on Mars. <laughs> That oh is amazing. God. It's so fascinating. It's also, a, it's a really perfect transition into, uh, like, you have a TED Talk where you talk about what we can learn even on Earth from these sort of understandings of food that we would need to take into space or to Mars or, you know, to be living extraterrestrially. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, where the things you think and uh, with regards to food and how it relates to sustainability here on Earth? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I'm passionate about, about being a geoscientist, you know, no place like home, <laughs> number one. <laughs> and and so this whole idea of solving for space solves for Earth. And when we, it's, space is the ultimate survival test because it's about 
efficiency in food, water, shelter, air, everything. And so as we learn to survive in the, that extreme environment, the technology we use comes back to earth and it helps us not only survive, but thrive here. And so for me, the food aspect was really interesting because it really got me to rethink about the psychology of food and what we consider fresh. And if we're shipping fresh food around the world every day, how much energy goes into that? And you know, you think about something that was um, harvested in like Indonesia. And then, and a lot of times they pick it before it's even ripe. And then they have to refrigerate it or they choose to freeze it and package it as a frozen product. And, but if they're keeping it fresh, then they have to, you know, refrigerate it, ship it, and then it gets to the supermarket and there we have to use energy to keep it, you know, cold and fresh there. And then I go and buy it and then I got to bring it home and then I got to put it in my refrigerator <laughs> and keep it cold and fresh. And then I forget about it. It spoils and I throw it out. <laughs> and, and so this kind of cycle of when we think about food, food is really water and nutrients. So can we take the water out through technology like freeze drying, leave that water at its source and ship just the nutrients? And you drop the, you know, when you do that, you take the water out, the weight becomes less. You, it's shelf stable, sometimes up to a decade. That's I mean, it doesn't wild. have to be refrigerated. You know, you go, you ship it without refrigeration. You put it on the shelf in the supermarket. I buy it. Um, I bring it home. I put it on my pantry and I don't have to worry about it going bad anytime soon. And so it's this whole idea of preservation of food. And then from the biology standpoint, because you you guys have biology degrees, um, microbial growth becomes less. You drop the, take the water out. And so you help to make it so your chances of getting sick from that food even less. And so there's all these kinds of little like um, ripple effects when we think about how we can take technology that we're using for space and apply it here on earth to be more sustainable. And I'll just say one more thing is food waste. Like a third of the food we produce goes to waste. And yet we have, we have not been able to solve uh, global hunger. And, and to me, it's like, oh, you know, well, if we rethink how we ship food, and it's not that I want people to eat just freeze dried food, it's about <laughs> shipping freeze-dried food internationally and packaging and thinking about differently and combining it with locally or regionally grown fresh fruits, meats, and vegetables to be able to make huh. interesting meals. So think about what you have in your freezer right now. Um, if you have frozen fruit, well, make it freeze-dried. <laughs> if you have frozen um, vegetables, freeze-dried. You know, there's nothing, uh, at least start with what's in your freezer and try to get that into your pantry. I feel like there's a million uh. interesting things you just said. So I'm trying to like <laughs> yeah. go through all the questions that came up in my mind when you said it. Number one, I don't know the actual technical difference. I'm not sure if you will. Um, what is the difference between freeze drying something and just like drying Dehydrate. something out normally? Yeah, Dehydration, so dehydration yeah. is more of a process um, where when you're pulling the water out of it, you'll notice that the food is going to shrink and um, it kind of shrivels up. And a lot of times that's the backpacker food that we're used to. Right. Whereas freeze drying is like you literally uh, cook the food, then you freeze it if, it if it needs to be cooked. And then you sublimate the water out. And what that does is that it, it allows the, the structure or form of the food to remain pretty much the same and you've just taken out the water. So it, hmm. you take out about 98% of the water. And it's so um, cool. It's like, how do people figure that out? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I am amazed how, at how we figure things out. But if you eat cereal with fruit in it, then most likely you're having freeze-dried fruit. If you've had instant coffee, and I know that Greg, you love your coffee, so I'm sure you're not drinking. You're not drinking uh, instant. I love instant. I love instant coffee. I it's love freeze it. It's freeze-dried. That's freeze-dried oh coffee. Yeah. I've always wondered what instant coffee actually was. <laughs> like, I just like put it in my body and been like, oh, it's working. It's freeze-dried, and so it's out there. And a lot of times now, if you go to your supermarket, you will find 
buying freeze-dried fruit now where you can get packets of apple slices or um, strawberries or things like that in a package that and it will say freeze-dried uh, and then people are buying it as a snack but you can imagine that in hopefully within a couple of years it will be vegetables things like um, I have an example here even though this is a podcast <laughs> you'll be able to see it um, this is a um, pea right here oh yeah it doesn't look any different and like, and so it's uh yeah and you oh, so can eat it right oh, out mm-hmm and oh, so wow. where do you get that so i buy it from a um company called thrive so i can get like this is freeze-dried peas huh. i have um broccoli but Whoa. i also have things like you wouldn't think like here i'm gonna hold this up super lightweight and let me what turn my camera thing off so you can see it better. Like and this cream? is this white, chalky-like subject, yeah. subject is actually freeze-dried chicken. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. So, so if you, you were... You, would you eat yeah. that like dried or would, or would you sometimes you add water? water to it? You want yeah, to add like, water to it. Okay, then. I would be like, you're not really selling me on that freeze-dried chicken there. <laughs> no, so what you do is, again, it's about creatively cooking. You had that experience where they, it, at the Canadian Space Agency, they had pre-packaged all of that, the meal, and then pulled freeze-dried it, basically. But I could combine, you know, my chicken and my broccoli and even this is freeze dried pineapple here. Whoa. And I could combine this with a into a curry. Add it into that, a curry okay. sauce and make a chicken curry or something. And That's then, it, and then so cool. the moisture comes back as you cook it because like right. you have a you have a recipe book and stuff. So like it, it does end up coming back as something. Yeah. Meals for Mars. She's holding it up. That's so cool. So you do end up adding the moisture back in. And so the food ends up tasting like what you would expect. Exactly. And so that's wow. what you're doing. So freeze dried is really good for soups and stews and anything that's saucy, you mm -hmm. know, um, but good also food. things that because so it's not it wouldn't replace a steak that you would grill um, right. and, and things like that. But uh, you can be so creative with it and it's also a good snack for instance like this pineapple the fruit or the veggies I can just pop into my mouth and oh it's so good. Oh my so god good. I'm jealous. <laughs> no, that is... I'm like that's that crunch. <laughs> it's so cr it's crunchy pineapple it is so good. And do you wow. know is the nutritional value like maintained when yes. something's freeze dried? Yes and so and most of the nutritional value you might have a little bit but we're still talking about, you know, high 90s for keeping the nutrition in the food. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And again, you don't have to worry about the spoiling because the food waste, the amount of food we throw away is astonishing. Mm. And mm. so how do we combat that? in a in a thoughtful meaningful way that's, that's so interesting so like we each have like us I, wow. I was looking at like a study related to this and one on food waste that i'm just gonna bring up now and you've already said this part of it like the united nations estimates that one third of food produced never reaches a human mouth which is <laughs> wild 
And then so I was looking into the study done by the International Food Information Council Foundation, long name. I think it's an American, like it was based on like American population. And they found that when asked what most often ends up in the garbage, 74% of consumers said they discarded leftovers of foods that were prepared at home. So it was the most common thing. Like there were other other things that people end up throwing out, but it was their leftovers because they would make it. And then their reason was that like the vast majority said because it spoiled or it went stale or it was not good. So they just threw it out. And I'm just like that to think of how much more, I mean, not necessarily that dry food would stop you from then cooking it and wasting it, but it maybe give you the ability, like for us, so much of our produce in our fridge, you know, you get this giant cabbage or this giant kale and you like make half of it and then you forget the other half. And then later you're like, ah, it's, it's gone bad. It is. And so then that's the problem is combating that, but also portion size and cooking for one or two, because a lot of times when you go to the store, you buy, you know, bigger portions. So when you end up cooking it, you have a lot of leftovers and so ideally with something like this you know it you'll you'll be able to pull out just what you need to make you know and not have as much leftovers ideally and it also goes down to even just the fact that if you did have leftovers from cooking with that you've still at least eliminated a lot of the like energy being used to refrigerate and things like that one thing i always think about and i just like every time i go to the grocery store even the pandemic just heightened it i'm be like this pepper is this cheap. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's from Mexico. I'm here in Canada. I I do not understand how I like every time I pay for any produce, I'm blown away about, about how inexpensive it is because I just think about what you just said. Like, this came from Indonesia. How am I paying like... Especially when sometimes we spend an entire summer to like grow a tomato yeah, in our backyard. Exactly. <laughs> I grow one tomato and I'm like, mm, yum, 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 yum. I'm like, well, I could just literally pay like 60 cents and get like three from like who knows where. So I don't like... Because it's it, not factored yeah. in. The true cost of food and yes. the movement of food around the world, we don't factor in all of that. And so, and then the carbon offset from that, you know, we don't take that into consideration. So is that just consumer? Is that just like over the years, like, capitalism like driving the price down like i'm, I'm actually curious like, I, I in think your opinion so. yeah. you know I, I i imagine that that's part of it is that whole um demand supply capitalism and and then also the culture of food and what we're willing to not only pay for it but what we expect and so if we're really going to have the, the radical shift in food that we need to have to be more sustainable, then we've got to deal with the culture of food and how we think about fresh and how we interact with, um, you know, the things that we we want to eat. And, and that's the same with going to the moon and Mars and the culture of food is, is powerful. You think about during this stressful time, what have you been eating? Like, what have you craved? Because you're like, oh my God, COVID. Give me the thing. I need the bag of chips. Literally last night, chips, chips, chips. So well, many that's, chips. That's interesting because you, you talk about sustainability a lot as well. And that's something that I think more and more people are sort of starting to care about. Part of the same sort of uh, stats that I was reading, it was like, now, like the percentage has increased every year in the study, 54% of consumers are now saying that it's it's important to them that their products are environmentally sustainable. I do. I want to mention something here because also we're sort of re- reading similar studies here. But the idea, one thing that this study found in survey is that people don't actually know what sustainable means and it means different things to different people it's like for some people it's about the environment for some people it's actually about their own health and so for some people they're like oh it means grass-fed and it's like there's such a like diverse array of like concepts Mm -hmm. behind that word can you speak to sort of like what maybe it means to you or if there's a way that you can help (laughs) us understand You know, and that's a good, that's a very good point. And because sustainability is linked to different things in people's minds, but sustainability really has is multifaceted. And it's, so it's not it's it's about the environment and it's about the economy because you got to have sustainable environment. You have to have a sustainable economy, but you also have to have sustainable like social justice and mm-hmm. um and 
the humanity component too. And that's where well-being comes in. And a lot of times people, when they think about sustainability, they think of one of those three things. But if we're going to be sustainable as a species, we really have to be sustainable in all of those aspects. So how do we have sustainable agriculture and environment friendly, you know, policies and things like that, but also that leads into the economics because right now the economics is what throws a lot of our, our mm. stuff off kilter. Um, the idea of the capitalism and uh, over ever increasing profits and to some extent greed and want, it, want versus need. But those are things that, again, are psychological that we could learn to program ourselves to be different and to be better. But then the social justice component is another part because you can't be sustainable as a community or as, you know, humanity, if we don't have that also worked out too. You you said something earlier that really stood out to me because I sometimes, um, one criticism of the sort of sustainable environmental movement and even sort of the social aspect, or maybe not so much, but it is that sometimes those things get ignored is that, you know, there is so much social injustice. How can we be caring about these other things first? But you mentioned how, you know, sometimes like the things we learn in space are so relevant to like improving the quality. Cause I, I do hear sometimes people say like, why should we spend so much money on space exploration when we have so many problems here on earth? And it's just interesting to realize it's all interconnected and like the endeavor of science as a whole, like with more funding, with more support can help us to solve these problems. But do, do you have any take on that? I just found that a really oh, interesting insight that you mentioned. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I remember it was my good friend, Mike Mongo, who was the one who was like, hey, solving the space solves for Earth. You know, we got to get on board on this. And I was like, yes, of course, because <laughs> I mean, the International Space Station international let's put six people up there in a tin can in the most hostile environment and see how well they get along and guess what they're getting along um and so when we're talking about these uh being an analog astronaut and doing these crew cohesion studies and putting people in these small spaces for a long time period well what we learn from that is we hopefully can apply here on Earth and scale it up. And if we can figure out how to get over the conflict resolution, uh, uh, the conflicts that arise and the um, ways in which we can cooperate and learn and interact, then maybe we can do that not only with our, in our micro communities, but across countries and nations and mm. things like that. Because we, if we can start thinking of Starship Earth as a mm. um the same way we would a mars simulation or even a colony on the moon and the efficiency with water and energy and food and shelter those things but here on earth and realizing that if we don't get efficient in all those areas well you know it's not gonna matter because humans won't be around <laughs> like the yeah. funny thing is the earth's gonna be fine without us <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. okay <laughs> like <laughs> the earth has wiped things out before and has continued mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so, the extinction events and like we're in one i'm always like yes. we are in an extinction event i'm like is Ex that something we should talk about more i don't know <laughs> and, and we can because that's exactly right because we're part of that extinction event and when we think about why we haven't had contact with, you know, other intelligent species out there, if aliens exist out there, then why haven't we, you know, found them yet? And there's this whole kind of like paradox that, well, maybe they get to a point where they become so intelligent that they destroy themselves. <laughs> they can't get past <laughs> that. And, mm -hmm. and, and we're in that kind of like perilous time. And it's like oh, real... Will our technology and our um, understanding, our smarts and all of these things help us before it's too late? Like where is the tipping point? And the problem is that we tend to be reactive as a species. Mm -hmm. um, we're greedy <laughs> and we want, but that's again a programming and, and we're reactive when the threat comes versus being proactive and taking care of it so that it doesn't become a um, 
catastrophic uh <laughs> yeah it's kind of like when we had that, ending <laughs> we had like a pretty good vaccine after sars in 2003 and then it went away and we're like oh well we can stop researching that and then here we are being like everyone's like well why didn't you keep researching it's like it didn't make money and people didn't want to research something because they didn't think it was coming and now we're <laughs> it's so funny isn't it amazing how short-sighted yeah. we can be because yeah. of economics and what drives us yeah. instead of just this whole idea of of the the betterment for humanity you mm -hmm. know which is very and linked to science science it is. is very it's so like the whole process of it, the whole thought that like it's so important and that's why it's sometimes like um uh for us a lot of time people are like we're quite political and people are always like why are you talking about politics science shouldn't be political but a lot of the time the funding has to come from politics because if you rely on industry and and capitalism as we said you're not going to be studying the things a lot of scientific endeavors don't involve something that make money it's about understanding and then what it ends up doing is saving a lot of money when catastrophes <laughs> come but it's hard to convince people of that and in, in the moment it really is and but that's one of the things that is so important and why science communication is so important and and getting people to understand that um, science matters, your vote matters, uh, the environment matters, all of these things and and it takes our energy and commitment and thoughtfulness as an individual if we each just take on one thing individually to be more thoughtful about either us as a species or the environment or something collectively seven billion of us each doing our small part leads to big changes i have a question just to get like more quote unquote back down to earth um <laughs> What what are some tactics that you use when you go grocery shopping? Like, is there anything oh. that you sort of do that we can just sort of like jot down and be like, okay. <laughs> well, the first thing I do is I typically will only shop around the outside of the, you know, the shopping center because that is going to be your, because when the things of processed foods in the United States, you know, we, uh, we have issues with, in my opinion, some of the regulations. And so we're not mm. typically as strict. And so if you're going to eat healthy, how do you eat healthy um, when there's all these processed foods out there? And so thinking about mm. the number of ingredients that goes into anything that you do. And so something like this, you know, when I look at the ingredients list, you know, the only thing it says is pineapple. Like that's it. Right, yeah, yeah. You know? And so no added sugar, no added ingredients. It's that one thing. Um, and then I can take that and I can add it and combine it with other things. And so but I think the big thing is being mindful of how much you are throwing out and wasting. Are you hmm. cooking enough just for yourself or are you going beyond that and if you're throwing out a lot of food what are what are the things that you can do to minimize that so being thoughtful about your food waste if there's one thing that you could do out there especially during covid is think about that and i had a friend who's actually um in canada who was saying how uh he is always out buying takeout in his busy life, you know, actor doing things always on set stuff. And so he's always eating takeout. And then he noticed that during COVID, he was cooking a lot more and that he wasn't taking the trash out as much because he didn't have all of the, uh, you know, the packaging that comes along with takeout. And so it was one of those things where he was like, oh, wow, I throw out a lot of, you know, packaging <laughs> you yeah. because I am doing a lot of takeout. And so it's those kinds of little mindfulness things that we can think about. And, you know, the more vegetarian you can be, the better it will be overall because of, you know, and I'm not a vegetarian. I like my meat, but I try to, you know, have a lot more veg vegetables and those kinds of products versus meat, just so that um, meat is is more, uh, when it comes to climate change, it has a bigger impact. Yeah, we've recently gone fully vegetarian. And I think mm -hmm. like, um, we've been playing with it with like being vegan, vegetarian, vegan, vegetarian. Right now we're at the process of being vegetarian. And I think it is like, 
it 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 really is um I don't know. For me, it's been like nothing but a good, like nothing but made me feel really good, especially when I like, even like, I didn't think I, I did it more from an environmental perspective, less from a like, um, animal rights perspective. I'm just like outing myself. <laughs> like I still care about animals, but it was, never, but now there's like a weird, interesting thing where I'd like, I see, I think I had like cognitively like dissociated that. So now when I see like cows and pigs and animals, I feel so much more connected yeah. almost because I've like, I've allowed myself to, whereas before I think I had to create, I didn't realize I had to create a barrier in order to justify the fact that I was like eating their flesh. I know that sounds kind of morbid, but I really feel now like I'm like, I, the reason I can't go back is actually from my like relationship to animals, which was never the reason I started, which I thought I've just have always, I've found a very fascinating part of like the journey. It is. And you know, that disconnect that we have to build. And it's so funny because I had a conversation with my brother. They went out into a nice restaurant and he was eating octopus. And I was like, whoa, can't do it. That's my favorite sea creature. I'm like, yes. way so too cool. intelligent Incredible. to be Some eating. Yes. <laughs> That's my favorite. And and so, but the, the that psychology of how do we get that um, association with all animals? You know, like can I give up bacon? <laughs> I can. I can do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you said is really interesting. That a big first step is just being aware and thinking about your food, and even if it's just minimizing and and knowing the impact of your consumption. You know, and something that just stood out to me too is like realizing it's like I'm surprised. It's unfortunate that so often capitalism has to be the driver for progress. But I was like, given that there is one third of food goes to waste, there's clearly a lot of money to make in saving that. So there's probably got to be an app or some system to help people minimize their food waste because that is literally so much money on every, on the producers, on the consumers. That's just going to waste that I'm like, there must be some creative solutions that can come out to help minimize that. That would benefit from an economic standpoint as well as an environmental standpoint. I totally agree. And I think that, that that's the thing is people sometimes think that they have to take, make radical changes um, to, to be uh, productive or to contribute, but you don't. Make one change, one mm -hmm. positive change, and then go from there. And, 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 but it starts from being mindful of your habits that you already have, and then being thoughtful about which one you wanna change and why, and then implementing that and and making that into your new habit and it all takes time and it's not it's it as you know it takes energy also because becoming vegetarian it you got to be thoughtful you got to be mindful about um when you're ordering and when you're going to the store but also your food cravings right because there's got to be some things that you have been like oh i missed this um and being able to work past that the psychology of working past that is not easy absolutely but, yeah. yeah a lot of it is like habits and just getting mm -hmm. yeah creating new habits and becoming aware mm -hmm. um but yeah honestly this has been so fascinating i feel like I've watched some of your YouTube videos where you make these really interesting meals yes. out of uh, freeze-dried food. And I'm like, when quarantine is over, I would love to one day hang out and you teach us some awesome meals. Because I feel like that could be such a cool thing that people can get into. Perhaps it's not as accessible right now, but hopefully in the future it will be more accessible. So where where can people um, find you and also your book and information and more information that they obviously would, be, would want from what they've heard you say? I, well, I, you know, I'm doctor at Dr. Cyan Proctor online. And so that's Instagram, Twitter, I, my YouTube channel is Cyan Proctor. I have an open Facebook and, and then I have my website, Dr. Cyan Proctor. Just Google me. I own the first 10 pages <laughs> okay. of Google. And, yes, uh, but, you do, you do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, and then my, I have a Meals from Mars page website where the cookbook unfortunately is sold out but i'm in the process of getting it up on amazon so that the digital version is available and also i recently in case since i'm giving a shout out i recently started doing getting becoming a space artist and so i have a patreon Whoa. where I, I create oh my god that's awesome it's afronaut space i call it my afronaut that space art so and cool. i send people and that's so beautiful during Oh, thank you. During COVID, I started um, 
wanting to connect people more around the world. So especially scientists. And so I bought postcards and I was just giving away postcards on Twitter and on Instagram to people. And I, it, it kind of had to do with my mom and my mom collecting postcards and that I had sent her from around the world. And people loved it. And I sent out about 300 postcards all around the world. And then people were like, well, where's your own postcard? We want one that's yours. And I thought, yeah. Okay, I'll make my own postcards. So I started doing Acronaut <laughs> Space Art. And I every month I send out a new special postcard that I've created that are just wacky and fun and, you know, pop culture-y and just interesting. Those are oh, really so beautiful. Cool. And so people wow. people can get this by joining your Patreon. Is that is that where you yep. send them out to? It's a... It, I do. So for $10 a month, you become part of my postcard Amazing. of the month club. I love and that. I and also you like you were selling, yeah, yeah, you were for, selling yourself short. Those were, that was for the art. audio listeners. Yeah. Those were beautiful. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, so cool. Was, Just that was, yeah. I'm like, okay, you have a new patron. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. It, well, oh, oh, thank, thank you. you so it, much it, for your time. <laughs> thank you for connecting and everything that you're doing for science communication and how thoughtful you are when it comes to elevating the voices of those who haven't necessarily had a big platform. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And especially for people of color, women of color and all that you're doing. Thank you. Oh, that means a lot to us. Thank you so much. Like you're brilliant. And it's been honestly just a pleasure to have you on and talk to you and see your content. And I'm so happy to know you. And honestly, I would love to collab one day when we can meet in person and cook together. I am all for that, and I'm going to figure out how to get you into a two-week Mars simulation. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Get me on the reality show <laughs> yeah, version. Yeah. I'm going to be at home eating chips and reading. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so, so much. It was so great to meet you, and I'm excited for our listeners to have discovered you and hopefully check you out as well. But we'll talk to you soon. Oh, what did we learn this week? So the study I found this week actually looked at how carotenoid-containing vegetables and fruits, uh, such as, uh, essentially all you have to think about are like bright-colored veggies. So like carrots or squash or oranges. Yes, peppers, especially if they're yellow or red. Okay. (laughs) Maybe even orange. Um, That's actually how you understand this nutrient is in it. And it can uh, noticeably change the glow of your skin. To look more, quote unquote, tanned or attractive. And when they actually found people who would eat these types of vegetables would be considered more attractive than people with a light suntan. So the way that they, they the study was really interesting. It was, uh, for once a study only done on women. (laughs) Usually they're always (laughs) studying men, but I guess for some reason, they're like, oh, tans. We've just had a lemon. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, like, I'm just like <laughs> okay. dragging the, my thought process around men making this study. But who knows? Anyway, interesting. So it was a study on women. Yeah. So the perceived attractiveness of the people who were eating these vegetables and one's complexion was rated higher after the carotenoid-rich diet versus a mild suntan. And so you kind of hear things about this in pop culture like there's the um, magic school bus right where uh, oh, one yeah. of the students eats too many carrots and like glows orange yeah, yeah. Because, well they're like seaweedies so you don't realize what's inside of it, it looks like seaweed but then they realize in- inside is like carrots or something yeah and, and and i'm just saying that that's a hyperbolic way of explaining something that is actually true which i didn't really realize and it just shows you you know if you're actually wanting to have a really nice complexion there's lots of cream there's lots of things you can do but it also it's there like, are eating well yeah eating well eating getting that those nutrients bright colored vegetables and that also goes for a lot of fruits there's a lot of antioxidants and very healthy nutritional things in like dark blueberries and blackberries and it's kind of interesting if you're going out there and you're looking for nutritious produce look for the bright colored things i mean that makes sense and i'm i'm trying to think of a way to say this not in a problematic or mean way but i feel like i can see that in my life of people who are like like just because someone is tan doesn't necessarily give them that glow. And it's like, I imagine in my mind that people who eat well versus people who don't, 
then I can kind of see that. Yeah, you're talking about like a guy, you know, when you see like custy dudes who only eat like pogos or whatever, and you're like, you're well, that was me growing up. <laughs> Truly, that was me growing up. Um, but yes, and I'm trying. Obviously, that shouldn't matter. Wait, that do you much. actually? Did you ever notice your skin changing? Do you wait? Did you? Actually well, just because only... I ate pogos didn't mean I didn't eat vegetables. Okay, okay. You, but you, you, <laughs> did you ever go through a phase of not eating? I was never like a picky eater i had did a few you, I, I wasn't an eater? overly picky eater i definitely had like peas i hated but outside and tomatoes i didn't love when i was growing up but i got over that but there wasn't a lot of things that i was picky about um so you're just saying there's people in your life who you notice don't eat many vegetables and what their skin is not look maybe it's vibrant or i've oh. always wondered like there are sometimes people's skin and that's why i'm saying i don't want to be problematic because i don't think this necessarily matters i don't think the color of your skin in in that sense like should be aware that somebody is judged but just anecdotally i feel like i could see that in my impressions of some people huh okay wow right? interesting but i'm like if any of the people i know are listening they're all like is it me <laughs> <laughs> um and so i'm curious if i we should do actually a video test on that and just like stop no i don't want to stop eating vegetables but like Ew, i'd be no. curious what would happen if you documented your skin over that process or go reach out to one of our friends and be like so i'm gonna get you to start eating carrots and um red peppers and then we're gonna actually just take pictures of you and then it'd be like a video process for oh you. oh my like, god <laughs> and like without telling them starting me like now this is a custy, custy <laughs> man that we know. And we slowly fed him vegetables and look how he trained. Exactly. But that would be interesting. A really cool study. Yeah, I yeah. know. I thought that was fascinating. And I'm, I've been I've been eating a lot more carrots ever since. <laughs> well, this week I learned that the drug Tylenol, which is known as acetaminophen, but the sort of brand name is Tylenol. I think it's also called paracetamol or something like that. Paracetamol. Oh, oh that, yeah. Okay. That's a... I, I, you won't get some paracetamol. Um, it may be doing more than just reducing your pain. Dun, dun, dun. dun, dun. Have you heard about this before at all? No. Paracetamol. Okay. So acetaminophen is one of the most commonly used drugs in the U.S., I think they say 25% of the population in the U.S. takes it every week, which is like a lot. So it's obviously it's over the counter. It's not like a prescription drug, but it's for pain medication. If anyone doesn't know. That's also over the top stats. Uh, So what they have realized is that people, when they take Tylenol, it increases your risk taking behavior. So people are more likely to do risky things what? when they have taken Tylenol. In, in this study, they gave them like a thousand milligrams, I think, which is the maximum dose you're supposed to be allowed to take at once. That's so interesting. Um, and basically, they found people feel less negative emotions when they consider risky activities. Um, and they also, general science, so the abstract of this and the introduction of this um, study was talking about how pain modulation, physical pain modulation is actually related to emotional modulation. So oftentimes pain yeah. medications can actually um, lower or minimize emotional right, emotional huh. experiences as well. But what they did is they took oh 500 gosh. students and they gave them this sort of digital simulation on a computer of a balloon blowing up. And every time they would click a button, the balloon would blow up and like get a little bigger and they would get money for that. But And so they had to keep pushing it to the limit before the balloon exploded. A risk, if you will. So you'd make more money if you clicked again. It's kind of like a game show or like Mario Party where you have to like take the risk. Literally Mario Party, And so the people who had taken Tylenol were way more likely to take those risks longer and were way more likely to have their balloon burst. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like when I like have a hurt foot or gout, don't tell anyone, even though I'm talking to my podcast, (laughs) I get gout at the ripe age of 32. I'm disgusting. I'm genetically not built well. But it's like I take um, paracetamol or Tylenol (laughs) and I do sometimes find that I'll do like a little like, like after it kicks in, I'll be like... Like kind of like do a little skin. jig, you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, it's because I'm like, oh yeah, taking a little risk with my toe, my like <laughs> inflamed toe. But it's like, oh my gosh, my brain is probably being like, come on, Greg, do a little jig. Um, okay, wow, good to know. I'll keep an eye out next time you are taking Tylenol if you're doing jigs. You're like, Greg, don't risk it. Your toe is gonna explode. I was gonna say like the reason also. I, I didn't occur to me, but the study was like, this is really important because if 25% of America is taking this every week, <laughs> what impact do those risk-taking behaviors have on society? It's all the freaking like stock market bros. And they're like, oh, what's another recession? Whoa, we were a bit too risky. <laughs> like, too much who needs cocaine when you're doing Tylenol? Oh my God. That's um, so funny. Yeah. That's a great study. Wow. I thought it was fascinating. I, I definitely am always in pain, but I actually, Tylenol is not my drug of choice. I often do um, Advil? Advil because I feel like 
Yeah, it's, it's anti-inflammatory. I'm like, I need the like swelling to go down. Last night I was just like doing work, and you went to the bathroom and just like don't like, say that. Then you just like took something. You're like, I think I'm addicted to painkillers, <laughs> and I was like, Mitch. it was a joke. It was a joke. But I more meant like, like what are you taking I the have Advil very, for all the time? Because I get headaches like all the time. So I think I just have like a low pain tolerance, or I end up hurting myself, or I have these what? headaches. And and, oh, my, okay. and my brain is so affected by the weather and the pressure that I often like yeah. on like maybe yeah. three out of seven days in the week, I often wake up with a headache and I'm like, hey, I won't be able to function properly if I don't take something. And it's usually just like I only need one and then it sets me for the day. But I do not actually think I'm addicted, but I do realize I am like, oh, I hope this isn't unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. I think about that sometimes. Um, okay. Anyway, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you guys for listening. I hope it was fascinating. I found that interview to be so incredibly oh, I love it. Also, I want to say, cause like so many people are good at podcasts. They're always like, okay, so they're like, okay, this is what this, I'll do it. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not share it with your friends <laughs> and family? And let's, but actually, like, let's increase, you know, this community that we are building together. Cause I'm actually serious. We never, we, we never do this, but if you are yeah. enjoying it, please share it. it like we would yeah. really appreciate it. Use hashtag side note podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, that's what we Yeah, check. I love when people like, whether it's tweeting or sharing it on the Instagram story and just saying, it's just so nice when I can see people interacting or even commenting on the YouTube videos. Cause we feel insane right now yeah. talking into a microphone into the ether <laughs> like it's it's fun to know that like it's maybe going yeah into and it's eardrum. easier than our our main youtube channel like gets lots of comments but we don't engage with it as much because it feels a bit overwhelming whereas this feels like actually a nice yeah. little community of people that get like understand us and are listening yeah. to us for a long time and it's like more real in-depth conversations and rate the podcast share yes. the podcast give us a review all Whoa, that jazz girl, we'd appreciate you it yeah i did it, it. I did oh it. my goodness okay oh. well it's been yeah oh whoa okay, okay that changed <laughs> really fast um it's been a pleasure and make sure you guys want to take some go get some paracetamol okay is that how we're ending this yeah go get some paracetamol all right and we'll see you next week we'll see you next time paracetamol bye <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.